0: Hi there. You're listening to the Venture Builder Map podcast. My name is Andries DeVos. I'm the co founder of Slash, a Singapore based venture builder. Every week, I come together with brilliant minds to talk about how venture building is changing the way startups are incubated and corporate innovation is evolving. I am delighted to have Mission Plus CEO Nick Martin. Mission Plus is a digital innovation studio that combines engineering, design agility, and expertise in commercialization to deliver market-ready tech products. Nick is an early-stage FinTech founder and overall a venture and tech expert across Southeast Asia. In this episode, we will deep dive specifically into methodologies for prototyping and validating early-stage ideas at a very low cost. What was your founding vision for Mission Plus and, and sort of
1: what was the originating story behind this? Everything starts with, as a journey, right? And for us, um, one of the reasons we co-opted the word "mission" into our company name, I think it stems from a belief that when you're doing whatever it is, that you make an effort to understand your why—the intrinsic motivations of what motivates. At this point in our journey, I would say we're still working it out, so it's not like we critically had you know the Bible built from day one. We're probably still in that Genesis stage. I think you know, if I go back on my story, I was I was struck by a herd mentality, and I went into a bank and. And I broke away, and then you know, I, I fell into a startup that I really enjoyed working on. Um, we were issuing sort of Visa debit cards as a non bank, but there were, and, and, and while there were a number of achievements and there was a lot of mistakes, there was a lot of learning, we were lucky enough, I think, to get to a stage where we could sell it and move to the next chapter. Um, I would say I really started thinking about a bit more deeply about what it was that was going to drive and motivate me when I moved over to an investor after all that happened. And one of the reasons I, I joined personally was. I was just interested in sort of like sharing my learnings from the experiences that I had. The investor was at a stage stage in in their investment cycle and looking to work with people at earlier stage, right at the idea. Um, And for me, the attraction point also was that I was going to get this, I guess you could say asymmetrical access to, you know, the number of different people that you meet who are working at different stages with different business models, different industries, you know, different ways in which they want to grow. And, and just the pure volume of what comes across your desk. And it can be a bit overwhelming, but I, I was just inspired to see if I could make sense of it all. It was actually during during that period that the boss of this of this fund who'd invested in you know, over about, I'd say 50 companies at the time, was keen to evolve into a venture builder. So I, I enjoyed the experience of, I guess, working out what his model meant and how I could support it. But it was encouraging that I was also allowed the opportunity to start a new company which today is mission plus i think you know having a safe space to work on something whilst not taking too much personal risk actually allowed us to evolve this this second time around when i say second time i'm referring more to my second sort of startup or my second company from from day zero i admit to being more conservative it's not that i would say that i got scarred by the risk that i see a lot of founders taking when they're starting something but Mission Plus, I felt, really had to start as a boring business model on day one. And so things like building technology for other people, you know, using the skills that we had and what was around us um, to generate value in terms of what we offered the client with delivery and software was was achievable. But then on the flip side, it gave us an opportunity to sort of like make sure that we generated the right cash flow, that we could develop operations experience, you know, time working together. It's giving us um, space and time to determine our own mission and work out what it is that we're wanting to do.
0: So where are you landing with this then, Nick? Like you said, you know, it gives you space and time to figure out where you take this next. So
1: how is your vision evolving? One of my friends just recently said, look, I like, I mean, I like the Ocean's Eleven thing that you're doing. And I, I actually hadn't really thought about it apart from the fact that he made reference to a movie that in the background what we've been doing is assembling a lot of people that we've been inspired or interested to work with that we may not have been able to attract them day one. Um, It's not always the case of can we afford them. It's just like what motivates them to want to give up what they're doing and inspire them to work with us. Um, I, I would say right now we're still in the stage of just ensuring delivery, you know, for client satisfaction. Have we got to that next stage yet of where we're taking bets outside of you know, the professional services. We're slowly getting there. I'd say probably our first is in prototyping, which we spoke about, you know, at one point before, Andres. but I'd say that um, there's probably other areas where we're cautiously dipping toes in water as well.
0: Is there something that you guys think have understood that others haven't uh, or is there an assumption behind Mission Plus that
1: is guiding how you're building your business model? Our initial goal was to, again just sustainability and then, you know, after that it was retained earnings, you know, then making sure that it's a financial base. I think that p stability then allows us to take small bets to test ideas, you know, which can become future IP. Um, because right now we're not building, you know, IP as much as helping deliver others. But, you know, having a roadmap, I think that, that allows us to look after clients while testing other strategies, you know, will be what defines us. So what is the economics behind this? How much retained earnings do you think you need to have
0: in order to make how many bets? Like, how, what does that ratio look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now it's, it's more that we ensure, I'd say that, like, we're comfortable taking money out of retained earnings to test something and say how long do we want to test it for so with prototyping you know in in the last part of of 2020 we said okay we're going to hire people but we're not going to have clients potentially and if we do have clients we don't have to push or stress ourselves on on pricing if they're taking risk on delivery or or we're not offering any warranty on on the output because we're still learning in this example we we hired people in singapore which comes at a you know sometimes a a higher rate of, of monthly um, expense than let's say other countries, but we wanted them to be near. We, we took risk on, on people at different stages in their career to see how how they would deliver in terms of what they could offer in a space that we were not really sort of like clear, like let's say if you compared it to, we have software engineer with X years of experience. We see a, a resume that shows that they've delivered on X projects. I mean, we can clearly go and and offer that as as a defined output. We we would probably if I was to go back to your question about the unit economics. I mean, I think there are areas where we're just as we're growing, making sure as well that you know, let's say if we've got hundred dollars right now that we're that we're earning, and we say, look, okay, for our next wave of client support, the, the contract value should be somewhere between five to twenty. If if in let's say three or six months time we've been, we've been growing, we should go back and look at our run rate because maybe right now that's seven and a half and, and you know, 30 because we've, we've grown by 50%. I think at the moment, you know, if, if we're just keeping an eye on our original business but making sure that then through those numbers we're putting away, then we can say, okay, where do we wanna make bets? Have you conceptualized
0: how big the bets need to be? Like are the bets, you know, let's say 20K per bet, 10K per bet,
1: 60K per bet, yeah, I'd say we haven't had enough bets to, like, conceptualise the range because I was actually asked that recently by someone who said, oh, look, you know, you're still in an early stage and your sample size is too small. I was like, yeah, that's probably where we are. Like, I, I think, you know, what we'd probably do is, is not constrain ourselves with, okay, we have to limit ourselves to 510K, but, like, what makes sense for the risk that we're taking? But then we have to obviously be, I think, critical at some point about, looking back and, re- and reflecting on the evidence of, of what we've achieved in, in one case that this has been like a partnership and someone has come to us and said look I like what you're doing and I think um, if you can invest time if you can invest some of your resources right so we could qualify what the time and the resources are to work with someone that we, we think has some promise it's really in an area where we think the business model you know has in this case an option to scale but we're not really sure if that's the case yet, right? So we have to go back and make sure each month that we're just having a look at what time and resource is because that's, in this case, we're not booking anything against that, but it's an opportunity cost.
0: Do you have things that you're not doing in your model? You say, you know what, this we
1: just won't touch. Yeah, I think one thing that we don't touch where we receive encouraging feedback is it's we're not just there to execute on delivery. You know, we do give critical feedback in terms of how we'd architect in different ways to offer solution. But I would say after that point, we don't go into any validation. And this may be a bias that I have, but when I was working at an investor, you could continue providing and offering services. And then at one point, are you doing the job of the person that you know, you're know you being paid to support or you know, in this case help when we're an investor. So I think we give a lot of tools around, okay, now that you've got this product, this is what you should think or, or thoughts or feedback or methodologies around how you go out and get it in front if it's still launching. Um, but I wouldn't say at any point we overstep the line of that and we say, look, you've now got a team that's strong product people, or you've got your own ability to go out and, and now talk to your customers like give us that feedback so we can improve collectively, but it's, it's a line that we certainly don't cross.
0: Very cool. I, I think that's a great point um, and a very interesting one because one of the things we we are doing, and it's very interesting, to, uh, I wouldn't say difference in philosophy. I think there's a similarity in philosophy, but a slightly different take on, on the asset that we're building. For every single capability we're building uh, as specialists, we're trying to build it in such a way that we can externalize it. The idea being that, you know, a bit like Amazon did um, with AWS or other things, the idea being that if we build a growth team for our own company slash, that growth team can provide service to our portfolio. Uh, but I take your point that at some point you have to draw a line, which is, you know, what does the entrepreneur, what is the entrepreneur expected to do, right? So we've taken a, a fairly, I would say, ambitious view of trying to, like, a, like an empire, an empire building view that we can build more and more capabilities that we then can offer in whichever format, that's a that's a commercial negotiation. Whether it's a fee or equity or something else, based. Or for our own ideas, it's maybe part of the package if we factor it all in from a financial standpoint, uh, in order to de-risk our portfolio, equity portfolio. But indeed, there has to be an expectation setting, you know, with the uh, with the founder. Um, so that's essentially the uh, the direction we we've been we've been taking so far. And it's sort of quite interesting to uh, to see we're now at the early stage of that process. I think pre pre-typing and prototyping is fascinating. <laughs> so I see you're kind of more positioning in the prototyping space, but help me understand how you came up with this. When was your aha moment when you saw prototyping in
1: action? I would say it actually came from two different angles. So one was Ned, uh, our technical advisor, and, and one was mine uh, when I was at the investor. Now, when I was at the investor, I would say that... Um, we weren't even looking at it as an aha moment for anything, but um, a lot of people were coming to us and asking for a lot of money to build something that they hadn't yet gone out and validated. So in these contexts, it was like, I need, I need $300,000, but $50,000 of that has to go to building this two-sided marketplace. And we said, well, firstly, before we go and build a two-sided marketplace, uh, shouldn't we get some guarantees or commitments that, The two-sided marketplace is what the customers want. And I kept going back and forth with a lot of founders. And and unfortunately, the market was quite frothy. And a lot of people were getting offers or interest to go build it elsewhere because the two-sided marketplace is what was going to scale the investor money. And we were being a bit more practical and prudent about growing a little more sustainably. So I think we're a bit of an outlier. But what we did was actually initially say, okay, how can we just validate this so that the person either gets the guarantee or we get the guarantee together so that if we have to go along with this because we like the person we can at least have a bit more certainty or through a process maybe move them away from a two-sided marketplace into another business model so we're testing a lot of different things about the, the founder mindset as much as we were you know even thinking about prototyping so i would say the first time i ran a design you know thinking you know sprint i really hadn't spent a lot of time with the process but It was just reading the book and saying, "Okay, well, how can we do this with three founders just to see if we've got enough certainty on whether we want to work with them? Now, I would say that, that, you know, day one, day two, sort of the problem solution and decision, you know, steps that you see in, in a design thinking process were relatively well run with the band that we pulled together from, you know, associates from within and with outside the investor. But the prototyping step was terrible. I mean, there was actually limited to no prototyping capability. And I think not meaning this as a, as a disservice to the book, but, you know, if you've read the stories about how um, the example of the robot gets built overnight in the hotel, to, you know, or, you know, that certain sort of like prototyping steps evolve very quickly you either need someone who can do something very fast or, in our case, you have to rely on smoke and mirrors, right? So we we finally got this person around to the idea of, okay, test the marketplace. Um, she couldn't co-opt at the time her technical founder to spend any time on it. So I think what we ended up with was just looking at an equivalent website that existed in the US and getting her to the simple process of maybe just covering the name of that website and going to, to five customers and saying, This is what I built, which she hadn't built. It was, it was a competitor website. Now give me some feedback. Now, in that case, it was really important because I think the assumptions that she had actually developed, which were now truth, you know, in some cases dispelled, right? And if anything came out of that exercise, it was just a, you know, an aha moment where it was like $50,000 was not needed to just and expect to, to, to build this website to test the assumption. So I, ca- I carried that into a few more design thinking sprints, but again, limited to no effort on prototype, um, just because we didn't have the capability. Um, but as uh, Mission Plus was evolving, and I was telling these stories to Ned, um, he's the technical execution part of Mission Plus. It was something that he's like, look, this is actually closer and more achievable, you know, just with our team that we have, um, but with the low-code tools. So we should look at them. And that's kind of when I started first then looking at taking prototyping to low code and, and those tools that you know, we, can, we can talk about.
0: Do you want to tell me a bit more about, uh, about, about those tools and uh, how they have matured over the years? Because, I mean, I would say five years ago, those tools were on very few people's radar. Uh, but it, now it seems that the market is evolving so rapidly that they are becoming more and more solid, more and more mature, more and more ready, just both for you know budget startup type of projects uh, like student projects so to speak as well as for enterprise type of projects you have now like a almost like a segmentation of tools for different purposes what's your philosophy on that and what's your take on how that will evolve sure
1: i'd say that probably 10 years ago it you know, was a period i couldn't build a website um, and i'd have to hire a guy or a girl and i'd have to say look these are my needs you know and so that whole process of come back in a few weeks and I didn't like the red or can you change the font? Yes. I really want times new Roman, you know, whatever it was that the site, you know, requirements, you know, sort of had to go through, there was a bunch of cycles, right. And so would ultimately land somewhere close to what I need. And then a website would, you know, would be there for, for nick.com to sell whatever it is. Now, I think um, when I started speaking with, with Ned about this, you know, he was like, rather than asking what, what low code is, let's just think about, What's, what's the problem with this right and and the problem that you know he came across from all of his time as a career um, systems ar- solutions architect and engineer was that the requirements for those ideas have always been based on interpretation so the, the gap that he talked about a lot was you know either he or his team didn't understand the domain you know as well as the, as the business user or the business units that just poorly articulated requirements but in in total there was just generally a a poor comprehension of requirements. And so, you know, while, you know, agile methodologies tighten the loop, there was always this wastage that, you know, he used to lament. And so when we sort of were looking at, you know, his experiences and started looking at the low-code tools, we just became a bit bullish on the idea that, this could just usher in a world where a business user could build their own applications. It, it, we've realised it can't happen now. I mean, we, we looked at low-code tools and there is, you know, something when you look at with Bubble.io, a very sharp learning curve that even, even I stopped and said, look, I'm, I'm not going to jump into this as a non-technical um, participant. But, you know, in time that will eventually improve, whether that time is two years, four years, five years, I mean, who's to say? Um, It's not my opinion. I'd say that I I would give a a few on. Um, But we thought that there is a transition period now where it's worth us having people who can become familiar with those tools and then shorten the cycle of, of, I wouldn't say development, but shorten the validation cycle to get enough signals, whether it's from your customer, whether it's from your internal stakeholders, um, your investor, whoever it is that you're trying to get feedback from, to get the confidence before you go to full development.
0: Oh, that's, that's brilliant. And I, uh, um, I agree. So do you guys offer that primarily as a, as a service towards, um, new ideas of young startups, or you also offer this for, uh, large enterprises? And when you do, how is that different as an engagement? Like what are the challenge, what are the
1: challenges of each? Yeah, we've offered it um, successfully to one large enterprise. We've worked with about five startups. I would say we chose the startups because they had time and no money. And we said, look, if if you wanna test this with us, we're not gonna charge you. Or we just, you know, we, we priced at a point where they felt like that, you know, we, we, we got their participation and their commitment and they felt like they were getting something that was worth the value. Um, I would say during those experiments, we were testing, is the output going to meet their requirement? Um, can we make this a viable business? Or if it's not going to be a viable business, what's the what's the cost structure for this in the future? Um, I would say that we tested the cycle of, of what we could do and how much time. What we, what we did, I think, what, what actually evolved and we think is helpful was reflecting back on that story of the five-day sprint not leaving enough time for prototyping. Um, we really decided in the first day whether it was with the institutional or the startup, just to absorb as much information around the idea and the problem solution as we could, and and unless the client was really unsure themselves, remove the debate and remove the noise around what's the what's the path to take. Just make quick decisions um, because we felt that if we could, you know remove a lot of the interpretation or the the need to get to an answer in a short period but just start building that the feedback loop from let's say two days of of low code output would actually get to a check-in point where then we'd have a better conversation than from powerpoints and debates around the table now invariably day two sorry day three which is three days in one cycle of of wireframing and prototyping didn't yield a lot of positive response um, but day five, day seven, you know, a path is starting to, to evolve. And we we found actually that that clients got by by the stage of about two weeks to a point where they were comfortable with an output, which in most cases was was just a, a low-code clickable prototype. Um, in some cases it was built with something like bubble that I mentioned, in some cases it stayed in Figma, in some cases we had a developer hack together with some basic code. So we didn't define the the point of, for how we produced. We, we were making decisions in each use case. Um, but it gave our, our point of stop and handover was you can now go and talk to someone about this and come back with better feedback. How, how, what's the learning curve on these type of tools? Um, is this something that
0: in the process of a two-week process, the business user can then... Take forward in the next iteration if he if they are committed to it uh, and invested in, in that methodology, or do you think it's still too early and they will they will always need external support?
1: At this stage, we're finding that they still need the external support. Only one of the five said, "Look, I'll go in and get my hands dirty um, and try it myself." Like we said, look, these are the logins. These this is the t- these are the tools that we're using. Um, you know, it's it's yours to, to also take forward. But I think that there is still. A Gap, it's not like me jumping into Squarespace and, and, and being in a position where I can, I can deliver at least a version one of my website by the time we finish this conversation. Like, it's not there yet. Um, but I think that what we were really trying to do is, is also evolve the mindset of, of trying to spend as little as possible to get to, a valid, to get to a point where you validate, test, and come back with confirmation before you commit resources. Now I would say I would caveat all, all of this by saying at the same time um, that it doesn't um, it, it it's not viable for us to continue doing this in, with a parallel business which is you know professional services. Right. Like in some cases we were we were stopping ourselves from eating the next round of lunch. Um, which we were okay with. We we're still testing and working it out. But we had we had one person who was quite committed to deploying their own capital towards building an idea out. At the end of this two week cycle, we came in and at the end of the presentation about this is, this is your app, you could just in the room, you could just feel the energy drop. Like there was a disappointment that, that, that washed over the room and the team was actually quite dejected at the, sort of the lack of response. But what it ended up was that the person said, you know, after they kind of took it all in, Look, thank you. This is really good because in this case, I spent two thousand instead of fifty thousand um, dollars. And what I've learned is, if I'm not even interested in what you in, in my own idea now, because it's not sticky enough, it's not as um, it's not as contagious as I thought it was going to be. And and where I was expecting there to be this comeback, you know, cycle to the app, I, I don't even see myself doing it. So how could I expect a user? Right Now, the step after that was that there were clear takeaways uh, for for this founder around how to make it more creative, how to make it more interactive, how to make it more gamified, but also an awareness that that was going to come from someone else. And they shouldn't proceed further until they'd solved that part of of the problem. So I think, you know, we felt comfortable and there's a little bit of karma that we'll get somewhere, hopefully, for saving that person $48,000. But if we did this every day and then we only relied on the one in five to go through it would change the business model. So we're, we're thinking, you know, you know, sort of how do we then put this in a place where we're happy for it to operate so we can do better by the world, but then still work on full service projects that people do have certainty and clarity over. So that, that aspect we're still working at. Um,
0: what venture building models and, and, you know, Mission
1: Plus-like models do you find interesting out there and why? And I realize that there's a lot of venture builders out there now, who are taking all of their skills and learning and applying it to corporates. Who, you know, if we think about it, still maintain and dominate a big percentage of the of the of the global GDP, right? The Fortune 500 probably owns a big percentage of it. And so, I think the efforts in the, in the future ways will come from from companies that that find that approach. There are some venture builders that I like watching who are, who seem to be getting in and around um corporates and saying, look it's not going to be one espresso, you know, that 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 gives birth to the next, right? And then there's going to have to be a process for us, you know, like looking at the value chain, looking at where you play and deciding, okay, what are the segments, um, realising that even if we define them and we come up with 20 entry points, um, that there's going to be some capital spent but maybe only one of them at best will get you to that, to that next business that generates, you know, a new line. I find that whole area interesting and I, I think there are people out there that are are starting to sort of like um, walk that path that, that I, I like you know, reading about or talking to. Uh, and for me, that's a really interesting area, I think, um, that, that I want to sort of spend more time getting to learn more about.
0: Thank you for listening. If you found this discussion valuable and don't want to miss any future episodes, go to Apple Podcasts Spotify, search for the VB Map Podcasts and subscribe.